everybody. This is Matt Valley bringing you another episode of the Rock and Roll Research Podcast, where we share the super cool backstories and side gigs of the research and insight pros that you trust on a daily basis. Today's guest is Brian Hughes, who has spent uh, the last 20 years or so in media research with IPG agencies, first with Initiative and for the last 15 plus years at Magna, where he is currently the Executive Vice President and Managing Director of Audience Intelligence and Strategy. O'Brien is a Brooklynite, and if there's one thing I know about a lot of Brooklynites that I know, they play in bands, man. <laughs> and Brian is no exception, uh, but, but the cool thing about Brian is that his band uh, had a name that was very apropos of a career in research and insights, and I'll let Brian tell you all about that. So, welcome to the show, Brian. Welcome. Uh, thank you, Matt, and thanks for having me. I was, uh, as I mentioned when we spoke initially, I was super ex excited to find out that there was a podcast where my two sort of quote unquote careers came together. So, it's great to be here. Cool, cool, good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, for, first, let me say that. I don't believe you that you've spent 20 years at IPG. Uh, you, you've, you've aged well, shall I say. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. I'll take it. <laughs> cool. All right. So, so let's start there. Um, so you've, you've been at IPG and that's, that's kind of a rarity, right? Spending 20 years with the, as, the same as employer. I, yeah. As I understand it, it is pretty rare in this business. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of cool when you encounter it. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you got into this space and, and how you landed at IPG and, and how you sort of progressed along the way. Sure. Uh, I mean, I'd be lying if I said it was completely intentional. So I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I graduated with a degree in writing for media, um, which is a little bit nebulous, as you, as you might imagine. And, you know, there was a time where I had kind of envisioned myself writing movies and stuff. And then you know, when I actually tried to write a screenplay and realized how hard it was, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, so when I first graduated college, I, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't really know what to do yet. And uh, I didn't have a lot of prospects in terms of jobs. So I kind of just did some manual labor stuff for a while um, and then leveraged uh, the alumni network from my alma mater, which is Syracuse. Mm -hmm. Um and found this position working at Telerep, which is a you know rep firm for sales, uh, local station sales, and uh, found somebody there who was the head of a research group, um, and uh, she hired me on, thankfully. And um, you know, one of the things that I I took to right away was um, you know obviously there's a lot of numbers and math and crunching data involved, which you know I is not necessarily my favorite thing, but uh, you know still interesting. So, but the, the, the thing I found more interesting was taking what those findings and turning them into a story. So, cause right. I've kind of always been a storyteller by nature. And, um, you know, to this day that the part of my job I enjoy the most is, uh, is, you know, looking at that, at those, uh, the data, looking at the numbers and figuring out what's the story to tell here and how do we help our clients do better based on that. Sure. Sure. So uh, I spent a few months at a Telerep, you know, obviously uh, back then, this is the late 90s, entry-level salaries were not awesome, and I had a pretty hefty uh, student loans to pay off, so I didn't stick around very long, uh, and then I moved over to Initiative in 2000, um, and I have been in the IPG family since. <laughs> cool, cool, excellent. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, so tell us a little bit about moving from Initiative to uh, to where you are now with Magna and a little bit about your current role. 
Sure. Um, so, um, you know, Magnum was formed in 2001, and the main, you know, the main sort of goal of doing that at the time was to sort of consolidate our, uh, you know, national TV spend and be able to kind of go to the market in a kind of collective bargaining manner. And sure. what started to form, you know, around that was the centralized insights unit that provided the trends and the data to say, hey, this is where we should be investing. Um, and a lot of the stuff I was doing at Initiative at the time was centered on TV. Um, and so it, it was just kind of a natural progression that I move over to Magna where this stuff was getting increasingly centralized, you know, and since sure. then, obviously Magna has evolved quite a bit. It's not just TV anymore. Um, the world is not just TV anymore. And uh, so we, we cover all media and, um, you know, it's great to have been now looking at the bigger picture of, of media consumption and being able to, you know, write about it and, and kind of say, this is where we see things going and help our clients, you know, get in front of the people they want to be in front of. Yeah, you know, and it's kind of interesting that you have a background in writing. Uh, I think way back then, you wouldn't think that that would be the kind of background that would be good for, say, research. Uh, but now with the importance of storytelling, uh, and being yeah. able to package data in a way that's consumable, uh, it, it probably has paid dividends for you, I would imagine. Uh, so far, so good. Yeah. And hopefully it, it keeps you. I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously there's been an increasing focus on data in the industry. And I think, of course, it's important to have lots of data. But, um, you know, I've always been of the mind that the data you have is only as good as the story you can tell with it. So I'm hoping that I can be continue to be useful for the foreseeable future. <laughs> cool, cool. All right, excellent. Well, let's let's talk about let's talk about the cool stuff, man. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've had a chance to hear some of your uh, some of your uh, stuff from your old band days, and it's really interesting. Um, uh, very different from what you might hear from a, a lot of other bands uh, these days. So uh, super cool stuff, and and a super cool name. So. When you were uh, starting out in your career, uh, you would you would come home at the end of the day, and instead of just slumping down on the on the couch and watching TV, uh, you uh, you went to band practice. So tell us about that. Yeah, um, so uh, you know the name of the band was the Equation, uh, which, the as equation. you say, you know for for <laughs> a data awesome. and research guy, you know works well, and I think um, you know mostly came out of the the fact that we were all a bunch of nerds, to be honest, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, honestly, they had kind of, um, I, my best friend is uh, the bass player I've been playing with since I was 16. So he had kind of started the project with a, with a classmate of his and um, they asked me to join, you know, after I graduated college and, um, you know, it, it just, it kind of took off, you know, and those, those guys really definitely made me into a better player. And we just, we were really into just creating fun music that we enjoyed playing and um you know of course the thing that set us apart you said you know you mentioned it being a bit different is that we, we were instrumental um so mm -hmm. no vocal no vocals ever um and um and yet a lot of the stuff that we play was pretty rock and roll you know yeah type stuff um but and and you know we heard more than once over the years like you gotta, you guys gotta get a singer, and we're like, no, nah, it's just not, it's not what we do, you know. Um, so we, you know, we found ways to to keep the shows interesting with, you know, stage antics and, you know, stuff like that. And uh, you know, we had a good run. <laughs> hey, you know what? If you don't have a singer, then that's that's one less attitude to deal with, and <laughs> <that> makes it <laughs> a lot easier. 
<laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've certainly been in my share of bands with singers, and it's a different dynamic. But <laughs> okay, now with the equation, uh, you, you got to play the most iconic club in the world, probably. Um, just the most iconic club, and at at a very weird time. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it was kind of the um, one of the highlights of our, you know, existence in, in the heyday. And that was, you know, we had played at the Knitting Factory when it was still in Manhattan. That was a really cool moment. But then, like, the kind of ultimate get was back then, and this is, you know, early aughts, uh, CBGBs had, like, a Monday night stay reserved for sort of auditioning bands to play. Right. So so we took advantage of that. We played We played CBGBs on a Monday night. Um, you know, we had a great set. We, we loved it. And, and we, um, you know, we were really sort of gung ho that it would get us a, another gig there, you know, down the line and um, seemed well received. Uh, the trouble that we faced was that this this Monday, particular Monday was uh, September 10th, 2001. So wow. you can imagine that, uh, you know, all of the all of the stuff about the gig and, and everything kind of faded away pretty quickly the next day. So yeah yeah that's uh that's uh tr well tragic of course uh, both at large but also a big bummer for your band <laughs> yeah it was but uh you know we still uh we still get to say that we played there which is great and uh um you know as i as i shared with you there is the recording is online on youtube uh for anyone that wants to hear it so <laughs> yeah now you you actually played multiple instruments right and and what did you play when you were uh on stage at cbgb uh, so we, um, I'm mostly guitar, but we had another guitar player who also played keys and we had several songs that had two bass parts. So, um, <laughs> I would play a uh, second bass if you would. Um, Isn't it like Spinal and, Tap? Spinal Tap had, uh, two yeah, bass a little and big bottom. <laughs> uh, yeah, more than two if I remember correctly, but yeah, uh, exactly. It was, uh, kind of that idea. Um, but we, you know, we would do a lot of har bass harmonies and some pretty cool stuff, um. So I did, I did uh, dabble a bit in bass, you know, um, but <laughs> I was not in any sense a true bass player, but, but uh, definitely uh, picked it up from time to time. Uh, who really is? They're, they're, they're usually, you know, guitarists that, that can't quite. It's true, it. but I, you know, I, <laughs> I'm just I, kidding. No. no, I find, you know, I find a difference, honestly, is some, somebody who started on bass is, I, you know, is usually a true bass player. Like my, my friend has been playing bass since day one and like, uh, he, you know, he dabbles in guitar the same way I dabble in bass, but he's, I, I consider him a true bass player for sure. Cool. Cool. And do you still play at all? Yeah. So we, um, I joined a new project, uh, not too long ago called the 86s. It's much more, um, sort of traditional than compared to the equation. Uh, it's kind of the stones meets the stooges look like punky garage oh, yeah. type rock. Um, we do have a vocalist, but he's a great guy. And, uh, a great collaborator so no no issues there um, um and it's it's been fun and the other th fun thing about it for me was um you know they had two guitar players so they weren't looking for another one they needed a drummer so i uh i i sort of relearned to play the drums i had taken a break from guitar in high school and, and picked up drums for a while and i kind of revisited it for this project just because i, I really liked the music and i wanted to be part of it uh, and it's worked it's worked out well so far great great well Given that you were playing music while you were building your career um, and doing those things in parallel, are there any lessons that you were able to draw from one to the other? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess there's there's two things that come to mind. Um, I mean, if we think about the CBGB story, right? It, it kind of and these are it's funny because these are two things that happened back then, but that have really come back to revisit me more recently. Um, is that you know typically what we see in the research world is trends kind of kind of take some time to unfold. Right. We see kind of things progressing over years or what have you. But I think what this year has taught us anything and what, you know, back then that day, then the next day taught us is that things can change on a dime now. Right. And you have to be you have to be ready for it and kind of try and anticipate what what that means. You know, um, so, yeah, I mean, I've definitely spent a lot of this year trying to help, you know, our colleagues and clients you know, navigate the world of COVID-19 and, and, and the sure. world that comes comes after ultimately. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, if, I, if you'll indulge me another quick equation story, sure. uh, when we were recording our demo in 99 in my drummer's basement in uh, Greenpoint, Brooklyn, um, we had a, a thing that happened where uh, we were recording and all of a sudden we heard a really loud knock at the door and yelling. And my drummer went to answer the door and he opens it and the NYPD pile. <laughs> piles in with weapons drawn um whoa <laughs> and uh we you know obviously we were in shock you know and uh they're and they started shouting about guns and we we're like there's no guns here just guitars you know and uh you know and it turned out they had the wrong address so there had been a report of shots fired somewhere nearby in the neighborhood and they had the wrong address and they showed oh my goodness you know wow. and you know and it was it was so, you know, scary at the time, but, you know, it, it happened so fast. It was, it was really bizarre. Um, but, you know, obviously reflecting back on that now and recently, I was like, you know, it didn't occur to me at the time, but if we were a bunch of black musicians, that would have went down a lot differently. And, uh, yeah. and so it's, you know, it's something that I've thought about and has kind of helped me on the career front in that I've, um, kind of reinvested in the importance of thinking about multicultural audiences and black audiences and the, how valuable they are and black owned businesses and how we need to rethink, you know, the way we do business around that. And, and uh, thankfully my company is very, you know, focused on doing better in that area. And I've, I've been able to be part of that. So it's great. Well, well, I guess it's, uh, uh, it's, it's useful to have uh, personal experience like that, that really brings that home. Yeah. So, um, yeah, very, very interesting story. Um, so you have been in the media uh, and audience research space for, for quite some time, pretty continuously. Uh, so I bet you've seen uh, a whole lot of change. Of course, there's been a tremendous change over that time, uh, not just COVID related, but uh, just in general. Uh, just curious what some of your reflections are about what those changes are and, and what, uh, what the future might hold. Sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, it's the thing that comes to mind a lot because we spend so much time talking about video um, is obviously, you know, streaming becoming the go to thing. Right. Um, right. And, um, you know, obviously the covid and being locked down has kind of accelerated a shift that was already happening away from kind of the traditional way of watching TV and towards streaming. Um, and I think another interesting thing that um, is kind of developing now is that, you know, obviously we've seen people getting rid of their cable subscriptions, you know, and they, they, they like the choice and the, and the UI of, of streaming interfaces. Um, and so, you know, one thing that I've been predicting now for the past couple of months is, 
you know, the cable model is going to change, right? So the cable industry has been been fighting against going a la carte for ever, right? You know, right. retransmission fees is their bread and butter and all that, but I don't think they're going to have a choice at a certain point. So yeah, I think that's something to watch out for. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So given that you work in media, uh, and this is a podcast, of course, uh, I'm curious to know uh, what other or what what media sources you turn to you know whether they be podcasts or uh or anything for inspiration either personally or professionally sure uh, i am gonna do some shameless public plugging at this point if i may do. Um, so our colleagues at uh, the ipg media lab have a great podcast called floor nine uh that i would recommend uh, to anybody in the business um they they're a little bit more future focused, disruption focused than we are. Um, and so really good insights to be had there and they have some cool guests. So I would check that out. Cool. Um, for anyone out there who likes to listen to podcasts to go to sleep, I know my wife is one. Um, my yeah. uh, colleague and friend, Scott Elcherson, who also works at the lab and does the Floor 9 podcast has his own, uh, which I think is ingenious. It's called T's and Z's. Yeah, it's meant it's meant to put you to sleep, and all he does is read the terms and conditions from various digital companies. That's genius. It's quite effective in in putting people to sleep, I think. And uh, uh, he also does a cool um, TikTok series where he um, will say, you know, cover like, "Hey, here's a, here's something in these T's and C's that I bet you didn't know you signed up for." You know, so it's it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool stuff. Uh, Personally, I'm, I'm a big true crime podcast guy, so I like a lot of the stuff that Wondery does. Um, there's a good one out of Australia called Case File. Uh -huh. um, um, yeah, so. Cool, cool. Excellent. All right. Uh, well, if you've seen any of these podcasts, you know what this question is. Yeah. Because um, I, I got to know. I just got to know. Yeah. So you're stranded on a desert island, right? Yeah. Uh, three records of your choice. And I'm really curious. You know, I haven't heard some of your music. I'm really curious uh, what what your three choices would be for the records that would keep you company for the rest of your days. Yeah. Um, you know, it, this was tough because a, I think if you asked me this question at a different point in my life, I'd probably have a different answer yeah. and B, you know, we live in the age of the playlist where nobody really listens to albums anymore, you know? Yeah, so true, I, true. Yeah. I, I tried to think of albums that I knew I could listen to back to front every time, you know, and mm -hmm. enjoy. So, um, I came up with two kind of evergreen options and then one that's more, a little bit more recent. Um, so, uh, the first one I would say call out is, uh, uh, Temple of the Dog. Which, okay. Uh, Interesting. Um, yeah. you know, it was from the grunge days and I'm a huge Chris Cornell fan. Uh, yeah. I was really, you know, really, uh, bummed to see him go a few years ago. And, um, I think that record is maybe him at his finest, uh, and uh, I was lucky enough when they did the Temple of the Dog tour uh, a few years ago um, to, to see it at MSG, and it was incredible. So, oh, cool. Awesome. But yeah, that album is something I can listen to front to back every time and love it. Um, another record, and this this one might surprise you, uh, that I can listen to front to back every time and, and love is uh, uh, the Wu-Tang Clans, Enter the Wu-Tang. Oh, yeah. Chambers. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, but I love really, that one. Really creative. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then... I try to pick something a little bit more recent. I do have a history as a as a metalhead, so I do enjoy I do enjoy the metal. So um, Anthrax's most recent album. Called, nice. 
It's called For All Kings, and it's it's I, I possibly their best work in my opinion. It's an amazing record. And that that came out in 2020. Am I not wrong? 2016, actually. Oh, 2016. But, okay, yeah. So yeah. I just I just read. I was just checking a list. Best thrash album by year since 1983, uh, and they ranked that as the best of 2016. Yeah, so, it's yeah. it's really good, and uh, I actually was fortunate enough last October to go on the inaugural Mega Cruise, which is in <laughs> heavy metal cruise hosted by Megadeth. And oh uh, my god, that's so cool! <laughs> I uh, I saw Anthrax play, and uh, and some of my other favorite me- you know metal bands, Testament. They were incredible. So. Oh awesome. yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a thrash metal fan from, from way back. So awesome. I'm kind of an anthrax fist fiddle, fist full of metal guy, you know, total, total OG kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, I love your choice, man. I love your choice. <laughs> yeah, no, it's I highly recommend that for the metal fans out there. It's a great <laughs> record. All right, cool. Excellent. Well, this has been a great chat, Brian. Uh, really appreciate your time. Uh, some really interesting insights about, about media uh, and thinking about, media and music and and how all that works um so really appreciate your time great choices and rock and roll thanks matt great great to be here